The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. My privilege to welcome back to our pulpit, Mr. John Hayward, who is a licentiate in our presbytery. It's a, it's a label for a man who is uh, training for ministry, who has already been examined in many ways, not yet ordained, not yet receiving a call to the ministry, but uh, John, a gifted preacher, a gifted man who has served us well in our young adults ministry and has been helping us during a season of transition by helping to fill our pulpit. We're delighted to have him bring God's word to us tonight. Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 uh, is what we will be uh, looking at uh, this evening. Please, uh, please pray again with me and ask God to bless his word. Lord, as we uh, come uh, to uh, hear uh, your word, uh, just make us uh, aware, make us sensitive to the fact uh, of our great need uh, for you uh, to bless our reading of it, Uh, Lord, that we, um, left to ourselves, uh, would not hear it rightly, Uh, we would not uh, embrace it, uh, that we need you to do the work of plowing up uh, the hard surface of our hearts uh, and preparing it uh, to uh, bless us, preparing it to receive uh, the seed of your word and bring forth fruit. Uh, would you uh, be with us this evening? Uh, would you make your word uh, known? We just uh, come to you uh, expectant and confident that you have promised uh, to bless us and to reveal yourself to us uh, on account uh, of our Lord Jesus. It is in his name that we ask you to do it. Amen. Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where is the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds. Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong, he's got to be fast, and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. Bonnie Tyler's 1984 song... Uh, is deeper than I thought when I first heard it as an example of music from a strange foreign land called the 80s. And she expresses a yearning that many of us perhaps have uh, for rescue, uh, for someone to take a stand for something good, for someone to fight oppression, someone to heal the brokenhearted, someone to just be awesome. Uh, to be a good, old-fashioned good guy. The people in ancient Israel could certainly relate to that yearning. Uh, After decades of turmoil and oppression uh, during the time of the judges uh, and ultimately the tragic reign of King Saul, uh, they think they've found that hero. 
They've been holding out for a hero, and 2 Samuel seems to say they have found it in David. He is fast and strong and faithful and fresh from fighting all of God's enemies, of his people's enemies, and soundly defeating them. Not only uh, 2 Samuel 8 uh, is is an impressive list of his victories and accomplishments, but David's more than just that. David is also a poet. He's sensitive. He's kind. He's generous. And, And it's only right and fitting that someone should be generous, that someone should be kind when you see the kinds of promises that he received in 2 Samuel 7, in verses 8 to 16, God's great covenant with David. But that context of great success and blessing makes the passage that we come to this evening all the more unsettling. Let's read in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? 
Did you not know that they would shoot at you from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone from, on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that the Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Lies, adultery, murder, intrigue. It's a plot that could get on HBO or fit with the soap opera. Let's look carefully at God's word and how it tells this story. Because we know that we might think we know the story just because we might be familiar with the facts of the story, even though it doesn't make it into all the Sunday school curriculum. But we want to see what Scripture is emphasizing and communicating in the way that it relates the story to us. Paying attention to how the story, to how, to the how of the story helps us understand what God is communicating. But before we do that, first, let's notice what's not here in the story. What isn't there? There is no seduction scene. There are no details about what the adultery looked like. That's not the Bible's purpose. Notice that there is also no psychologizing of any party. There's, there's no inner thoughts of any of the characters. So it's, it's wrong-headed to try to find some sort of deep inner workings and read this as some Davidic midlife crisis. There aren't those details. There's no inner dialogue about what's going on. So what is there? Well, most prominently, there are verbs. There are verbs showing what David did. The emphasis of this passage is on David's actions. Like the summary statement shows, but what David had done displeased the Lord. After chapter 10's big broad strokes of wars and campaigns, the author slows down and goes from the battlefield to the palace and shows us what David did. So what can we say about David from this passage? I want to split looking at this passage into three sections. We can see that David is disappointing, he is deceived, and he is depraved. Or we could say found wanting, wandering, and wretched, but those don't start with Ds. So David is disappointing, deceived, and depraved. David is disappointing. What has happened to our hero? What happened to the warrior David? It says, at the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed home. Where where was the tenacity of the giant slayer? He's lounging at home. What, What has happened to the great benevolent king? David 
earlier in 2 Samuel, was kind to Mephibosheth, a potential rival to the throne. Getting rid of Mephibosheth would have made sense, but David warmly welcomed him to his table and gave him honor because of David's faithfulness to his dead father, Jonathan. But here, David betrays and connives against an honorable and faithful captain of his troops who's fighting his battles. And David even knew Uriah's character was strong because he wouldn't dare be an unfaithful messenger. So David can entrust the message with the scheme into his own hands. He can trust Uriah with, with, to not open the message. What has happened to our hero? Right? And what makes David's sin even more hard to bear is that we've seen throughout his life that he has had a close relationship with God. He's described by God as a man after his own heart. And so his sin shows us clearly that he is deceived. David is deceived. He's blind to his sin. That's, that's clear in all the ways that despite David's sin, despite this murder, despite this intrigue, he is still himself in many ways. He's deceived, but he's still himself. It makes his sin all the more glaring because he's still himself. He plays the host, but with a plot to cover up his adultery. And when he fails, he decides to set up Uriah to die. And Joab obeys, and Uriah dies, and others die. But then we see that David's still himself because Joab coaches the messenger in how to deliver the message in a way to avoid David's wrath. David cares deeply about his soldiers. Joab knows that he has no tolerance for foolish escapades that get men unnecessarily killed. So the messenger is supposed to temper that reaction by mentioning that Uriah was one of those who died. The deception is is even more clearly shown in the next chapter when we see David in chapter 12 going around business as usual, still passionate for justice for the afflicted as Nathan's parable shows us. He is still David in the midst of being deceived and in sin. And this should be a sobering warning to us and keep us watchful because we shouldn't think that we would notice a change in ourselves if all of a sudden we are deceived and fallen into sin. We don't think we should notice a change in ourselves necessarily if we slide into sin like David has. And finally, David is depraved. Let us look at what David has done Look at the verbs again. He looks, he inquires, he sends for, he takes, he lays with her. And then to cover up his sin, he tries to get Uriah to go to his wife. So there's a plausible way for Bathsheba to have gotten pregnant. And when that fails, he orders Joab to make sure that Uriah dies. He then again sends for Bathsheba and brings her to his house as his wife. We see here that the shepherd of Israel has become a wolf. Rather than protecting And guarding his people, he takes advantage of them and plunders them. The anointed king of Israel, who for years held his hand back from striking Saul. Saul, who had rejected God, who had unjustly pursued David, who had slaughtered the Lord's priests, who consulted with a witch. David holds his hand back from killing that guy but strikes down a faithful servant whose only crime was being a faithful servant. Notice that it emphasizes that Uriah slept with the servants of his Lord every single time. David is a murderer, 
and an adulterer. How did this happen? Well, first, it's important to know it didn't just happen as if some cosmic dark side of the force we call sin got the better of David. David sinned. He broke God's law. He was wicked. He chose to do this. There's there's no excuse for David. There aren't even extenuating circumstances. He wasn't going through suffering. He wasn't in a tight spot. He was on top of the world in worldly terms. And David's sin is harder to take because he had looked like a hero. We probably find it easier to talk about Saul's sin. So we were used to hearing about Saul doing wicked things. We were never tempted to want to identify with Saul. But it can be jarring to wake up to the disappointing nature of this deceived man. Why did the author drag us through this mud? Why, why, why couldn't he have left the hero David alone? Right? Is it really edifying to, to think about this scandalous story? Well, we know it's very intentional on the author's part because 1 Chronicles 20, verse 1, in an alternate telling of the tale, leaves it all out. Here's what it says in 1 Chronicles 20, chapter, chapter 20, verse 1. In the spring of the, year, of the year, when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. David didn't go fight, but Joab did fight, and the Ammonites lose. Short, simple, and doesn't mention Uriah or his wife. The author of the, book of, of the books of Samuel is up to something. You see, it's, it's easy for us to turn the Bible into a storybook full of heroes and villains, But the Bible is about God. So while David is a disappointing hero, it should serve to remind us that only the Lord is trustworthy to lead his people. But even with all these reminders, this is is not an uplifting passage, is it? And and it doesn't get better, actually, if, if you think about the consequences, if you think about the fallout of this great sin. See, it doesn't just say something about us. It doesn't just say something about David. It says something about all of God's people. Think of what it means for them. It is bad news. The promises in 2 Samuel 7 were not just pertinent to David. God had promised that he would finally bless the people with a rest from their enemies and plant them securely in their place. What will happen to those promises with such a king? as David, as a result of David's sin. And we see throughout the rest of 2 Samuel that there are civil wars and worse that come from this sin. Is there any hope for God's people to find rest and peace and security? Well, the author of 2 Samuel uh, has given us that news already back in 2 Samuel 7. If you look closely at that passage again in verses 8 to 16. In verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, there's a very specific promise that can be a source of comfort for us. It's talking about David's offspring, but it certainly applies to David as well. It says, when he commits iniquity, when he commits iniquity, God will discipline him severely out of his steadfast fatherly love. You see, God's promises 
to David were not based on David not acting like Saul. They were based on God's promise. They were based on God's gracious choice and his covenant faithfulness. In this passage, we see, 2 Samuel 7, that neither David's death nor his descendants' sin will stop God from fulfilling his promise to bring rest and peace to his people no matter how long it takes. And we see God's faithfulness revealed in this manner in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that hero that we need. And, and much better, much better than a streetwise Hercules or, or, a, or a hero on a white knight, on a white steed. Jesus is better because the story of David shows us that we do not most need salvation from our circumstances, from sickness, from poverty, from strife, or from anything else. We need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from our sin, from our depravity. And no one other than Jesus can give us this kind of salvation. No one other than Jesus can be that hero for us. Jesus is great David's greater son. Let's go back through the outline of the story and consider King Jesus and how much greater he is. Jesus is a victorious king who leads his people into battle. He has already faced hunger, people's hatred and scorn, fierce temptations, and he has faced death itself. He leads the way, and he will not relent until all his people are saved from and all of their foes are vanquished. Christ is not a self-centered Lord, arising from his lazy boy and grasping whatever he can, but entered the world as a lowly baby, born under scandalous circumstances, and he associates with the hurt, with the isolated, King Jesus did not illicitly seek a bride that was someone else's and then kill the rightful husband. Rather, he pursued an unfaithful, adulterous people who were rightfully his. He pursued us, his bride. Though we are disappointing, deceived, and depraved, turning from our fairest Lord Jesus and pursuing money, sex, reputations, comfort, and sometimes just a little bit of quiet instead of pursuing him. He looked upon this ruined bride, loved her, went to the cross, and washed her in his blood so that with him she might be gloriously raised to new life. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. May we all delight in doing what we just sang and cherish Christ, honor Christ, and make him our glory, our joy, and our crown. We do not need to hold out for a hero anymore. He has come. He has defeated sin and death. And his work isn't done yet. In us or in this world, Jesus is not just a hero that saves because that's what heroes do. He has saved us for a purpose. He has saved us so that we might live righteously and worship God wholeheartedly. For now, we live by faith. And we contemplate our Lord Jesus in preaching, in singing, and in reading. But he will come again and bring us final rest and peace. And when we finally see him, when we finally see him and we are loving and praising him in person, we will be like him. And we will be free from the power 
from the penalty and even the presence of sin and will be guaranteed to no longer be disappointing, deceived, and depraved. We'll be guaranteed to live in that kind of perfection forever and ever and ever. It's a glorious hope. So how do we live? How do we live in light of that supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of all the promises that we have in Christ? How does, how does it equip us? How does this passage equip us for every good deed? How does it rebuke us? All of Scripture is good for all of those things. There are three points of application that I pray that the Lord works in us. First, uh, this passage will confront the fact that our belief in total depravity is not put into practice well. We, we don't live in our thought lives and our attitudes and in our expectations of people like they are actually, or we are actually, totally depraved. We say things like, I can't believe he would do that. Or, how could you? I thought you were different. And we see ourselves as moderate sinners at worst. We, we might need some better behaviors. Who doesn't have some growth edges? And we probably need to have a more positive attitude more of the time. But we think we manage to live overall pretty decently. The downfall of a man like David, the downfall of a man after God's own heart, should open our eyes to our depravity. And not just as an anthropological concept, not just as a doctrinal stance or as a general principle in this broken world, but as a personal reality. Do you see total depravity as a personal reality? Are you aware of things that you have done that displease the Lord? Be on guard if there is a lack of conviction of sin in your life. And watch out if you only ever flippantly confess your sin. Second, so we need to put our, practical depra- our, our doctrine of depravity into practice. Second, we also, this passage should spur us on to pray for our leaders. Uh, it, should, it should spur us on to pray for our leaders. Having a track record, this passage shows us that having a track record of years of faithfulness, of years of waiting on the Lord, does not predict continued faithfulness apart from abiding in Christ and being diligent in the means of grace. Having a track record of years of faithfulness does not predict continued faithfulness apart from abiding in Christ and being diligent in the means of grace. This story should sober us about assuming what kinds of things lifelong Christians are capable of, even our Christian leaders. And Paul, throughout the scriptures, the whole New Testament, all of God's word, sets a very high standard for leaders and warns them regularly to watch out for themselves, to watch their life and doctrine, to be above reproach. We should encourage our leaders in these things, and we should pray for them. We should pray that the Lord keeps them alert and watchful, and also pray that even as they serve the church, that all of our leaders would find their greatest joy in knowing that their names are written in the book of life. Third, and here's where I want to camp out, God is displeased by his people's sin. God is displeased by his people's sin. God sees and is displeased by sin. 
None of our dark thoughts or dark deeds go unheeded. And don't be deceived. God is not unmoved by even a hint of depravity. He is displeased. That is the powerful coda to this story. That is the message about God in this story. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What a fearful sentence if we have our heads on right. No matter who it is, high or low, an immature person, a mature person, king or pauper, God sees sin and it displeases him. God is displeased. God cares. He, he's not passive. He's not removed. He's not unaffected by our sin. It displeases him. Our, our, our self-destructive habits... Our dehumanizing actions, our dehumanizing attitudes towards ourselves or towards others, our idolatrous hearts, God is not unmoved by these things. It displeases him. He is jealous for us. He wants us all, body and soul, spirit and strength, all of our minds. He demands our all, and our sin displeases him. Our sin can make him, to quote John Calvin, wondrously angry with us. Our sin can make us him wondrously angry with us that we might shake off our sluggishness. God's loving, fatherly anger moves to action. He is for us in Christ. He is against our sin. Think about that. God is displeased by your sin. Let that feed your fight against sin. Let that give you hope. God, who in the Spirit dwells in you, is displeased by your sin more than you are. And he wants you to wake up to that fact. We don't have time to go into chapter 12 of 2 Samuel and to go into Psalm 51 about the call to repent and the nature of repentance. But God's displeasure... His, his anger should make us eager and urgently feel the need of repentance. Nothing can break our union with Christ, which is ours through grace by faith. But our communion, our fellowship, our enjoyment of God can be taken away. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11. Section 5 says this, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance." God is displeased by our sin. Let that strengthen our resolve against sinning. And of course, this isn't any true, any less true for Christians than it was for an Israelite king. 
than it was for David. It's not any less true. The logic of the New Testament is that sin in a believer becomes more heinous because of the glories revealed in Christ. Not less. By no means. Less. We have the Spirit, and our sin grieves the Spirit. We have seen the Messiah tortured, crucified, and killed. His blood poured out for our sin. It's grievous and cold to think that we would take sin lightly. As we are about to sing, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. See who bears the awful load of the just wrath that is executed against Christ. It is the Word, the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God. How could we not be moved by such a costly love? Of course our sin displeases God. It put Christ on the cross. And it should especially pain us to displease the one we love. Especially because we love him because he first loved us. But the precious, the precious blood of Christ, the hope we have from the body of Christ broken for us, is that it will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. And, and nothing when Christ comes again. Nothing when we are saved to sin no more. But the eternal, radiant pleasure of God will be ours. The same fully satisfied pleasure that the Father has in Jesus will be ours for day upon day upon day upon day into eternity. The promise of that future, when we will no more ever displease our Father, should make us willing and able now to do all that we can to fight sin and not displease our merciful God. Let's ask him now in his mercy uh, to make it so. Lord, we do confess that as we lose sight of Christ in our life, uh, we lose sight of the heinousness of sin, of the personal reality of sin. Lord, would your spirit bless uh, your word uh, to us? Uh, would we would we see uh, your displeasure and have our hearts moved uh, to repent, Lord? Would we not be satisfied by anything less than the light of your countenance? And so would we humble ourselves, beg pardon, and repent and renew our faith in Jesus Christ as that sacrifice, as his body was broken for us, as his blood was shed for us? And make us new and keep us faithful as we persevere until Christ comes again or takes us home. Amen.